everyone and welcome to the SOC podcast, some ornithological chat, brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. We're recording this in late February. Uh, I was going to say spring is in the air, but looking out the window, it's a bit dull and drizzly. But having been out a few times recently, there's lots of bird song these days, and it really does feel like the birds are gearing up for the breeding season. So that's really nice to, to see. Now, I live on the coast, so I don't get to see too many species of raptor, but I think that spring is a pretty good time to see some species of raptor. And it's pretty fitting in that case that I'm joined today by Amy Chalice and Andrew Stevenson. So, Amy, first, can you tell us who you are, where you are and what you do? Hi, Mark. Um, yes, thank you ever so much for, for having us both today. So I'm Amy Chalice, the Scottish Raptor Monitoring Scheme Coordinator, and I'm talking to you today from my home in Perthshire. Yeah, Mark. Hi, um, I'm Andrew Stevenson. I work for Nature Scott as uh, one of their bird team. I lead on raptors and I uh, I'm the key person for Nature Scott in the Raptor Monitoring Scheme, and I actually chair the group that oversees it. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. So if you haven't worked it out yet, we're here to talk about the Scottish Raptor Monitoring Scheme. So, Amy, can you sort of give us a bit of a background about what that is and what it does and, and why this year or this, you know, this period now is such an important time for the scheme? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're a partnership of eight organisations, um, all involved with monitoring the amazing raptors that we've got here in Scotland. Um, so we're currently focused on monitoring the fortunes of breeding raptors. So that's about 20 species in all, um, the diurnal raptors, the owls and also raven, which we treat as an honorary raptor species. <laughs> Um, so, so one of the key aims of the scheme really is to be able to produce national and regional trends in breeding numbers and productivity. And we were delighted basically last November to be able to produce our first set of trends to mark the scheme's 20th anniversary. Um, so, yeah, as well as using data for the scheme um, in terms of producing trends and our annual report, we also share our data with with partners. Um, in line with our data sharing and use policy. And that basically means that a whole raft of conservation professionals can really use our data to help um, inform conservation um, work to benefit raptors. So it was, your, it was your 20th birthday recently? Absolutely. Um, did you have so any cake? It did. It had some amazing <laughs> cake, which hopefully went down really well. So we had, um, yeah, an amazing raptor decorated, really large, large cake, but also a whole raft of celebratory cupcakes as well, which, which each had a little raptor embossed on top of it. So I think they went down well with our with our audience. So that was that was fantastic. I shouldn't have asked that because that's just made me hungry now. So you've, had, <laughs> you've been you've been doing this for 20 years. And like you said, your sort of ambition has always been to produce these these trends for raptors in Scotland and, and these are now available now off the back of this 20 year anniversary so Andrew so can you tell us a little bit about the trends where people can see them and, and that sort of thing uh yeah they're they're on our website raptor www.raptormonitoring.org um uh, we have a nice interactive page on the the trends as well um unfortunately I haven't been able to produce trends at all the kind of scales we wanted to and for all the parameters we wanted to but that's partly due to the the change the differences in geographical coverage of different parts of Scotland. <clears throat> so uh, so yeah, but it's the the first real trends for Scotland, uh, and it, uh, we're really proud that that has come out. Um, yeah, so it, it's a it's a bit of a, a milestone for us. And can you tell us a little bit about the trends that you that you have been able to generate, and perhaps some of the reasons why there are trends that you haven't been able to generate as well? 
Uh, well, on, well, it's a, it's based on a 10 year data run from 2009 to 2018 so far. And uh, yeah, quite a few of the trends are, for a lot of species are actually uh, non-significant. So there are, there are increases and decreases, uh, but we're, they don't actually uh, know if they're real or not or how real they may be. So, uh, but we have had, uh, as you'd expect, some obvious things like some negative trends for hen harriers in parts of the country, but we've also had more interestingly, perhaps things like some negative trends for buzzards, which people don't think about as a species that might be struggling in some parts of the country. So, so there are changes going on. The parrot population is very dynamic. So, so this is just a starting point, if you like, to start looking at things as we build on it in the future. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about here is you've got where, where data allows, I guess, you've got region, you've got national trends and you've also got some regional trends as well for so, for example, certain species might be doing well in some parts of Scotland and less well in other parts of Scotland. Yeah, yeah. OK. And so, Amy, how do, tell me about how it all works then, basically. This sort of project uh, lives and dies on data. And, you know, there's more than you two involved. So where does all this data come from that these trends are generated from? Yeah, well, absolutely. So volunteers are crucial to the work of the scheme. Um, they're basically the boots on the ground, um, putting in all those hours to collect the important data that the scheme can analyse and report on. So I think it's fair to say that the biggest contribution of data to the scheme currently comes via data contributors who are members of the Scottish Raptor Study Group. Um, but we also receive data from other partners, from individuals and also via contributors to the scheme's Raptor Patch Initiative. And all this data collection basically equates to nearly two million pounds worth of data and effort each year um, which is actually astonishing and you know for which the scheme is extremely grateful to all those contributors so so that's yeah that's how that part of the scheme operates um and, and, oh sorry carry on don't let me no, stop you <laughs> no, I guess in just in terms of sort of how the, the wider the wider partnership works. So um, we've basically overseen by a steering group, um, which is made up of the representatives from the eight different partners. Uh, and they meet several times a year to discuss the scheme work programme. Um, it's chaired, as um, Andrew said already, by himself and, and Nature Scott are the chair of that. Um, and in terms of scheme funding, um, Nature Scott are basically the, the lion's share funding wise, but other partners also put money in too. So BTO, RSPB, Forestry and Land Scotland and SOC all put cash contributions in, but there are various other in-kind contributions for, from all the partners as well. So it's quite a big, big scale operation. Um, and of course, you know, once data comes into the scheme, then there's a massive job to do in terms of actually analysing and curating it. And all that's done um, by by the BTO um, who provide all that all that support and employ me, obviously, on behalf of the partnership to deliver and to lead on delivering our work programmes. So that's sort of the mechanics. And, mechanics and delivering is exactly what that's doing right now, which is which is great to see. Can you tell me, Amy, can you tell me a, a wee bit more about the monitoring itself because people listening to this might be familiar with things like webs counts where you you go out and you you count some birds but I think for raptor monitoring it's a little bit more in-depth than that isn't it yeah it's definitely more involved so um we've basically got 
best practice guidance. So there's um, the Hardy manual, which has basically become the Bible, the go to book really for raptor monitoring right across Scotland. Um, lots of raptor study group workers and raptor experts from the UK all contributed to that guidance. So that's where we basically point point people to. Um, I guess general Hardy methodology basically encourages people to undertake a minimum of four visits. So that's what's considered necessary to really be able to track um, you know, the, the bird monitoring effectively right through the season to capture initially occupancy, but following that right through to successful fledging. Um, so that's, yeah, that's where we'd be pointing people to, to seek more guidance from. So we're talking about people actually spending quite a lot of time with these, but not with these birds, they're not sitting in the nest with them, but monitoring them from some distance. And, in, you know, they're not just saying there's a nest here and there's a nest over there. They are waiting to see so how many young are fledged how successful the nest is that, that sort of thing so you pe people involved with raptor monitoring either have or have an opportunity to build up a really sort of in-depth knowledge of the species that they are they're able to study which i think must be quite enticing i think to, to folk who wanted to get involved with with raptor monitoring uh, andrew before we get into how folk can get involved what else what have the data been used for apart from you know this huge milestone of generating your trends and your annual reports. Can you tell us what else the data have contributed towards? Yeah, I mean, the, the scheme's come a long way since it started. We've we've actually kind of doubled the number of records coming in annually to, to about 6,000 now. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the uses are many and varied by the different partners, but they all have a raptor conservation slant to them. So, for instance, Nature Scott use it regularly for uh, things like uh, planning development casework, like wind farms and forestry proposals. Uh, we also use it for sort of updates of conservation status of species, so it feeds into things like people who might have heard of the Birds of Conservation Concern report that comes out, so the raptor data goes into that. It goes into the rare breeding bird panel annual reports. Um, it gets used, for, it's been used over the years for a number of important bits of raptor research, such as the, the Golden Eagle Conservation Framework, for example. And again, from an HSCOT point of view, it, it can be very important for informing uh, politicians, etc., because we get to sort of provide advice to the government and also to provide advice in terms of answering parliamentary questions about raptors. And obviously, a lot of it is high profile and a bit political with some of the conflict areas. So um, we do need to have the good objective data of the scheme to be able to to inform people correctly of what the situation is. And. I mean, there are obvious threats to raptors. Are, are new threats such as avian flu a big problem? Do we know what the, how raptors are susceptible to that? I, my, my guess is that with some of them being scavengers, or at least you know scavenging some of the time, then the raptors are at risk from avian flu. Is that a problem? Uh, it's something we're actually trying to look at just now using the scheme data. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's an issue that's obviously been in the news for uh, a range of birds. Raptors being very dispersed as breeders and, and largely non-colonial and not very social for most species outside the breeding season. The risks of them contracting the disease in the same way and dying off in big numbers like um, geese or seabirds just isn't there. Um, but we have had... Uh, a wide range of raptor species in Scotland. Most of the regular species have a few, at least one or two cases of avian flu being confirmed in them. 
Now, we're, there are more concerns. Quite a lot of buzzards have been recorded. Uh, they're the majority of raptors that have been tested uh, positive. Uh, we've also had it with um, white-tailed eagles have had a particularly poor breeding season, and it may well be partly at least related to avian flu. Um, so basically what the scheme's doing at the moment, uh, well, what the contract is to the scheme, is looking at this year's uh, breeding season data and comparing that with some of the trends data and some of the previous year's data for sort of occupancy and productivity, et cetera, to see whether there are any really abnormal uh, and atypical results this year that may well have gone beyond any impacts that you would normally expect in those areas, such as parts of the west of Scotland had some very poor weather at key times, so that will depress productivity generally. But if it's way beyond what we've seen in previous poor years due to, to weather, then there may well be a, a more significant avian flu impact. Okay, so these the data that are collected are being used for all these sort of very important traditional reasons, but they're also helping us to react to, or us, you, to react to some of these novel threats as well. And, and I think that's the sort of thing that you know, people could really would really want to contribute to. So, Amy, how how do people get involved? So there's various ways that people can get involved in monitoring, I guess, two key routes. Um, so Scottish Raptor Study Group, which are obviously one of the key partners of the scheme, are always keen to hear from new people that might be interested in getting involved in monitoring. So people can get in touch with them direct via the Scottish Raptor Study Group website. Um, but people can also get involved with our initiative um, that we've got running now called Raptor Patch. And that's basically been set up to gather more information about some of our most widespread but under-monitored species. Um, so the species we're talking about there are things like buzzard, kestrel, sparrowhawk and raven. And we really do need to start collecting more information about those species to help us fill some really important gaps in coverage and really improve our understanding for those species. Okay, so and and is Raptor Patch something that we can we can join now, or is it ready, or what? So people can come along and find out much more about it on the scheme website. We've got a dedicated page so people can um, really understand what Raptor Patch is about. So just to say a little bit more, so with with Raptor Patch, we're really encouraging people to take on an area of about a tetrad in size. So we consider that to be a manageable area for people to take on, and we're really getting people to really cover that patch really really comprehensively so sh they should be setting out to attempt to find every pair of that of a given species of their choosing um within within a year so that's that's the sort of level of information that's going to be really important for us going forward in terms of producing robust trends into the future because you're able to track that coverage through time and, and just see how that population um is growing so people are welcome to come along to our website um, to find out more and get in touch to find out more. And we're probably really going to be looking to, to push Raptor Patch properly um, over the next couple of years. Um, unfortunately, we're not in a position to offer any training events this year. But if people are happy to willing to, to give it give it a go themselves without the backing of any training behind them, I'd be very, very pleased to hear from them. So that sounds great. I mean, that sounds like an opportunity for someone like me who lives in a place where there aren't all these glamorous raptors to really get involved and to contribute. Both Amy and Andrew have mentioned quite a few web websites and places online that would be useful to people who are interested in getting involved. What I will do is I'll put links to all these things in the podcast notes so that people can uh, find out a little bit more about Raptor Patch and, and Raptor Monitoring Scheme and read the reports and see the trends and all the rest of it. So I don't know if you've listened to this podcast, but what 
before we go and talk about the, the birdery stuff, I insert a little section on identifying some bird sounds. So we're coming up to March, or people are going to be listening to this in March, most likely. Any raptor sounds that would, it would be good for me to highlight for February or March? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, it is the start of the breeding season for, for a few species. The, the sounds, I mean, lots of raptors are pretty quiet, but um, but one that isn't, I mean, if you if you happen to be on the, the west coast of Scotland, obviously, particularly, but uh, white-tailed eagles are pairing up just now and settling down, and they can be very, very noisy at this time of year with a lot of display and activity. Um, in your local parks and things as well, you should be watching out for sparrowhawks because they'll be starting to display and they'll be calling and doing the display flights. If you're really lucky and you have a nice bit of woodland somewhere, you might get a goshawk displaying, uh, and they can be quite noisy as well at this time of year. So, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a few, and obviously this time of year, it's a, a territorial time for owls. So it's a good time to go out of an evening and listen to for tawny owls and for long-eared owls, uh, particularly the two species that um, we could do with more records of. Uh, they're probably both long-eared, particularly is such a secretive bird that. Um, any additional information is always a bonus. <laughs> okay, that's great. That's given me because I usually do two sections on on bird sound, so that's given me two to do. So thanks for that. You've you've uh, you've you mean you've stopped me from having to think about that. Okay, we're going to listen to some sparrowhawks and some goshawks and maybe some white-tailed eagles, and then after that we'll go back to chatting with Amy and Andrew about uh, something maybe a bit less serious. So. Andrew has requested that we listen to some Sparrowhawk and Goshawk calls and I instantly regretted giving him that choice when it occurred to me that I didn't really know anything about how to separate those two because I don't hear Goshawk very often or Sparrowhawk very often at all. But now is a good time to go out and listen to them and if you do hear Sparrowhawks and Goshawks at this time of year it's probably a sign that they're engaged in some sort of display and breeding activity and this is exactly the sort of information that your local raptor monitoring scheme and your local bird recorder would like to hear about. So, first of all, you're going to hear two bursts of sparrowhawks uh, calls, and then you'll hear goshawk after that. So you might notice that the sparrowhawk calls that we heard first were much higher pitched and the whole sequence of calls was delivered a lot more quickly than the goshawk calls that we heard shortly after that. And I think that that difference probably does ring true across the board, but I would urge caution separating these two because male and female sparrowhawks sound slightly different. One is higher in, or, or lower pitched than the other. But still, with the sparrowhawk calls, they really to me they have a sort of squeaky toy quality. Uh, like a dog toy sort of squeak vibe going on. And goshawks almost have a rather jackdaw-like sound. Especially at the beginning of the call, I think the individual notes sound quite jackdaw And there are differences in the delivery as well. So it's almost like a chattering pace with the with the sparrowhawk calls. And the goshawk call feels much more... It's delivered more slowly and more deliberately than the sparrowhawk call as well. Have a list again and see if you agree with me on that.
Both of these species have another call that you might hear at this time of year. Have a listen to the following recording, which is goshawk first and then sparrowhawk second this time round. But a lot of the differences are true for the, for these calls as well. So the sparrowhawk call is higher pitched, definitely has a sort of squeakier quality to it than the goshawk call. And listen to the raspiness of the goshawk call as well. Okay, welcome back to the to the chat with Amy and Andrew. Now you've just heard some sparrowhawks and goshawks, uh, but now we're on to the birdery questions. And I always like to start with time machine questions. So Andrew, if you had access to a, a time machine for one for one go only, where in your birding life would you go back to, and why? Uh, th- th- there's quite a lot of possibilities. It's difficult to choose, really. But um, I would probably go back to my childhood. Because um, uh, in my local park, I used to monitor the sparrowhawks. And that's what first got me interested in raptor monitoring. So they're to blame for where my careers ended up. And is this a sort of a pure nostalgia thing? Is it there wasn't any particular moment that you that you loved about it? Just the development of your future self, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time looking at those sparrowhawks. Um, and at that time, the local park had red squirrels and things in it, and uh, I even found them as prey remains. So yeah, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid watching those sparrowhawks because there was there was other local kids who were egg collectors. So I used to sort of keep an eye on them to make sure they were always all right. So, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, I mean it's a very it's a very noble use <laughs> of the time machine. I think people other people have gone back to uh, you know particular falls of migrants or you know particular birds that they've seen. But you know I like the idea that you could go back and sort of spend some time as or with your your younger self again, you know, the, the pure nostalgia of it all. Yeah, sorry, I'm going to have to divide this up between you. So, Amy, here's a question for you. If you could put anything into a Birding Room 101, what would it be and why? Yeah, good question. Um, this is one for not alienating your audience, I guess. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm wondering if I can stick a whole family of birds in there. Um, you can stick whatever you want in there. The, that's um, it. Doesn't sometimes people feel like they've they've got controversial answers to this? I don't think a, a family of birds sounds controversial at all. Right. Well, I'm going to risk sticking in there the the family of the birds of paradise, um, simply because they just freak me out. I think they're just way too flamboyant, and I just yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, if if I was going for it, that's that's what I'd do. <laughs> Have you ever seen any of these, or, or are they so freaky that you don't want to see, even see them? Not in the flesh. I just think they're just way too way too flamboyant. They're they're yeah. Don't get me wrong. They're they're incredible incredible species. It's just they've just gone a little bit of a step too far. I think. <laughs> so they're just too garish for you, really. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything in in the UK or in Europe that comes close to that garishness that you also object to? Oh, I wouldn't say object. No, no, <laughs> that'd be going too far. Um, but, How do you feel yeah. about bee eaters, for example? Yeah, they're they're probably all right. They're they're a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I could tolerate those. That's fine. So, <laughs> so no, nothing with plumes. That's uh, nothing yeah. colourful with plumes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 
give me a lapwing a lapwing with its crest on its head i can take that that that's awesome but yeah that's yeah that's i i can get on board with that it, that's sort of a bit more subtly stunning isn't it absolutely absolutely yeah. I'll probably okay put so them in there forever so um they could come back out again um you know they're, they're just sort of momentarily in there while you're around yeah yeah, I think so. Yeah, I wouldn't want to deny the rest of the world them forever, for sure. So. Okay, well, consider it done. That's Birds of Paradise into Room 101. I wonder what I wonder how people will feel about that. Okay, so here's a question perhaps for both of you. What's the best piece of birding advice that you've ever been given? Let's have Andrew first, if he's got something. Uh, yeah, again, difficult question, because I've spent a lot of time with a lot of really good people who know a lot and know a lot more than me. Um, but yeah, lots of sagely advice. But probably the main one is um, always keep an open mind on things. Even if you think you know everything about something, we're always learning. So there's, so there's that is probably the most important thing. And the other one, the key thing, it would be uh, uh, don't walk on quaking bogs. <laughs> yeah guilty <laughs> yeah I, I totally hear what you uh what you say about about keeping an open mind and, and assuming that you don't know sorry being comfortable with what you don't know some of the best birders i know are some of the first people to say i don't know anything about this you know th- those are the people who sort of are, are i guess m- most willing to explore rather than just thinking what they know is 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 what they is what they know so what about you amy has anyone ever told you not to walk on a quaking bog uh, they've not um i guess mine's probably not something that was given direct to me personally but i guess it's just a saying that's always stuck with me which i heard griff reese jones say on a, a program once and that was you know if that's crows that's rooks and if that's rook that's a crow and that's kind of always stuck with me in terms of helping sort out my um i was going to say covid but i mean covid <laughs> um, so, so um yeah that, that's that's a simple one for me i guess um i like it i like it yeah and it, yeah. it works on on you know by and large that works so yeah that's that's a good one okay i mean while we're on with you and i know that you're not going to say birds of paradise for this what bird would you like to be reincarnated as yeah that was a hard one to think about um but I think for me it would be coming back as the it's a specific individual so it's coming back as the specific tawny owl that is currently roosting in the big spruce tree in my garden it's really frustrating I'd like to know exactly which branch it is sitting in on that tree because I can't see it from the ground I'd love to see where it where it's exactly sitting and also just really to kind of if I was coming back I'd be coming back and going to use the nest box that I've had in the adjacent tree for the last couple of years waiting for it to breeding um so I sort of give give myself the courtesy of kind of coming along and making myself easy to monitor um, so this is yeah. future you rewarding past you absolutely why not yeah. so you have a tawny owl in it I guess you can hear it all the time yeah hear you it, can hear never it pick night. it out where it's roosting yeah, absolutely. So it's really regular at the moment. You can sort of sit and watch it um, just a few minutes after um, sundown, just flying out the tree and going off to hunt, I guess, um, which is, yeah, a real privilege, really, um, to have that just outside the bedroom window. So Yeah, it sounds fantastic. That sounds incredible. OK, on to something, something that I like to I like to discuss with with birders. Andrew, if you uh, could nominate 
a species for the, the best shot as the next first for Scotland. What have you got for that? Ooh, well, you just thinking about it, um, climate change is affecting loads of bird populations and loads of migration routes. So the possibilities are getting increasingly wild, if you like. Mm. Uh, there's all sorts of scope. Um, but one which is stubbornly refused to turn up in the UK, even never mind Scotland, but has turned up in Europe a few times, is the willet from North America. There's a way to, so yeah, I I want to predict that one, and it could be uh, on South Uist this year, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, but, ha- having spent a wee bit of time in the Outer Hebrides, I think that when willet, when willet eventually turns up, inev- it's inevitable. I think the Outer Hebrides is a great shot for it. And uh, I mean, if it's turning up in the Outer Hebrides, then I mean, who might be lucky enough to find it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, my other thought was um, uh, the way things go with uh, DNA research these days, it's as likely to be a, uh, a taxonomist changing a, a subspecies to a species. So, you know, it might be a Zorian yellow-laid gull. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I might be biased on I'm a bit biased about that because yeah, of course, I've, I've seen the only one that's been accepted for Scotland. I don't, I don't know what the t- sort of taxonomic position on Baltic gull is at the moment, but that's Ooh. something in my mind as well because we had a bird found dead actually in northeast Scotland just the other day that was a, ringed as a Baltic from a Baltic gull colony, so uh, second record for Scotland. Um, but I hear what you say about about climate change. I mean, my my prediction for the next first for Scotland is Eastern Crowned Warble a bit. It, you're right, it could be something completely wacky. And I guess some of these Pacific seabirds that are turning up mm. these days, you know, with uh, global warming sort of melting the ice in the north so that these things can come over the top. So tufted puffin or, you know, one of these Pacific alkids could be a really good shot for the next first for Scotland. But uh, it does it does it does feel like a bit of a long shot, I guess. And to 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 end on, I'd like you both to answer this, no matter how uncomfortable it might be for you both. What's the biggest birding blunder you've ever made? Amy, go, you can go first, Amy, if you like. Um, OK, I guess no one ever wants to admit to blunders, um, but probably my biggest was when I was doing my PhD fieldwork um, back in the late 2000s. Um, so my fieldwork was mostly winter-based monitoring of the wintering waders and wildfowl, making use of a managed realignment site at Nick Bay on the Cromarty Firth. Um, so I basically spent many days standing on an embankment, looking over my main field site in all sorts of weather, dressed up in a gazillion layers. Um, mm. And basically for a considerable amount of time, I'd convinced myself that this small, darkish bird making regularly loose of the channel behind the, the sea wall was a baby cormorant. Um, I later discovered that it was a little grebe. So I felt just a little bit silly. Um, <laughs> That's me. <laughs> that, okay, yeah. And uh, can you match that, Andrew? Oh well, well, there's there's two obvious ones spring to mind for me. Um, many years ago, I managed to turn a perig- uh, cormorant into a peregrine, which, um, in in fairness, it was gliding head on and very far away. That's my excuse. But uh, but possibly the the classic is the uh, living in US. We were lucky to have. Uh, snowy owls turning up fairly regularly on the macker, particularly in the spring, and that involves you know, spending time scanning the fence lines and hollows because uh, they like to tuck in there. And um, yeah, I, I spent a while watching one that was incredibly still, and then only in closer inspection did I realise it was a white bucket. Was, it, was this on North Uist by any chance? Yes. Because I have 
walked across the Macca towards a white bucket along a fence line on North Uist. And, you know, my first, when, when I picked it up through the telescope, um, a long way away, my first thought was, oh, that, that could be a snow hill. I'm going to get closer to that. You know, I didn't want to disturb it, but, you know, I had the scope, so I, I thought I could get closer, close enough to it to see some detail through the scope. But the way it was aligned, I just couldn't convince myself that it, it wasn't a plastic bucket. And even, I, I ended up walking right up to it. <laughs> I'd got it in my head so much that this had the possibility of being a snow hill. I, I basically had to go and not literally kick the bucket, but close enough to kick the bucket to just confirm to myself that I was looking at a bucket and not a snow hill. So we've all been there, uh, but it seems that you two do have a bit of a problem with cormorants. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks very much. I think it's I think it's really important that we talk about these things quite openly, especially if we w- wish to encourage younger people or you know beginners to sort of really get involved with birding I think you know it helps make us sort of human and approachable to folks so thanks very much for answering that uncomfortable question we're going to go and listen to some more raptory sounds now perhaps some tawny owls and some long-eared owls which you can be listening out for in March so it just remains for me to say thank you very much for coming and talking to us about the Scottish Raptor Monitoring Scheme Amy and Andrew and uh, all the best for your monitoring this season and all the best for your harder launch of, of Raptor Patch next year. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. So Andrew also asked us to have a listen to some of the owls that may be quite vocal at this time of year. I think probably all species of owl are a little bit under-recorded, but in February and March we can hear tawny and long-eared owls vocalising as they kickstart their breeding seasons. So we're going to have a little listen to those. Tawny owls I imagine that we're mostly familiar with, so we'll hear a little burst of tawny owl, and then we'll hear the soft, repetitive hoots of long-eared owls after that. And just like I said with the sparrowhawk and goshawk calls earlier on, these are really, really important records. So if you can go out, if you live in the countryside and you can go out and listen for these calls, then that's fantastic. Or if you can drive out one evening to somewhere suitable and sit in a car with the window down, listening for tawny owls or long-eared owls, then your local raptor monitoring scheme and your county recorder, your local bird recorder, are going to be really delighted with that sort of data. So have a listen to these and familiarise yourself. See if you can contribute to the, the data set on these under-recorded species. So, thanks again for listening to some ornithological chat brought to you by the SOC, the Scottish Ornithologists Club. Spring is in the air now. By the time I bring you the next podcast, you'll have all been out here in 
chiff chaffs and seeing wheat ears and sandwich turns and the rest of it. And isn't that a lovely, lovely thought? So enjoy your birding until then. The evenings are still pretty dark though, so when you do find yourself with time, have a look around the SOC website. There's loads of really, really cool stuff on there. I've harped on about this quite a lot, but I think that our online Scottish bird report is well worth a look. Decades and decades of bird reports for each county in Scotland, which is searchable by species and by county and by year. We also have back issues of Scottish birds there. We also have the migrant table, so early dates for migrant arrivals and all sorts of other stuff as well. So do feel free to have a browse on there. There's some brilliant stuff. Also, coming to you soon, if you're listening to this just as it's gone out, the next issue of Scottish Birds, which is, again, rammed with really brilliant content. Look out for that coming through your letterbox, or, of course, these days you can get it delivered digitally as well. I recommend a digital subscription to those who who want to give this a try. It's not going to take up any space on your shelves, but you get a taste of how much quality there is in the SOC's journal, Scottish Birds. So do feel free to have a look at that. And if you follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter, you can see some of the content as well when we put the sneaky peek out. Uh, That's going out soon too. So it's nearly spring. Enjoy the rest of the winter. Until next time, good birding.